Hello, I'm Eric Kapitulik, a former U.S. Marine Corps Infantry Officer and Special Operations Officer. And I'm the founder and CEO of the program, a team building and leadership development company that annually works with more than 160 collegiate and professional athletic teams and corporations throughout North America. And this is Coffee with Cap. Joining me today is Dr. Hendry Hank Weisinger, PhD. Dr. Weisinger is trained in clinical counseling and organizational psychology. He is the author of several successful books, including the New York Times bestseller, Nobody's Perfect, and the book that we are going to discuss today, Performing Under Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters Most. He has consulted and conducted workshops to dozens of Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, taught in numerous business school executive education programs and executive MBA programs, including Wharton, UCLA, Cornell, NYU, Penn State, and Columbia. Dr. Weisinger has appeared on over 500 television and radio shows, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, Oprah, ESPN, and NPR. His next book, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, will be published in September of 2021. Dr. Weisinger, thank you so much for joining me and us this morning for Coffee happy, with Cap. I'm happy to be here. Please call me Hank. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Hank, let me start with this. For the, for the audience who has not read Performing Under Pressure yet, and it's a book you've got to read. Uh, can you explain what your research entailed prior to writing it? How did you arrive at writing this just awesome, informative book? What did you draw from? Well, first, I got interested in the subject because I am a big baseball fan, especially a Yankee fan. And when I moved from L.A. back to New York, one of the great pleasures was being able to watch on the Yes Network uh, the Yankee games. Plus, my daughter had become friendly at school in L.A. with this girl whose uncle managed Yankee Stadium. So I finally had access to the great seats. So I was going to games by myself all the time from Connecticut, New York, and then right back uh, home. And it would really bother me when I'd watch all these Yankee games that I'd see these players uh, strike out in the eighth inning, relief pitchers come in getting bombed. And I see all this, uh, what we would call in sports, you know, using the term choking. And it was really upsetting me. So I started saying, why are these guys choking so much? And I did some reading and the first conclusion I came to was, they're not choking, they're just not good. And that is a big, big difference. Uh, so I started reading a lot about the subject of pressure. And one of the things that I found is that most people equivocate stress with pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a huge difference. And one of the contributions that I like to think of the book was differentiating between pressure and stress. Now, you work with all these sports teams, but you've never heard a sports announcer say the players are under a lot of stress 
or the stress is increasing. It is always the pressure is increasing. So I started to differentiate between stress and pressure in terms of the psychological constructs. And in reading the research and in the studies, I came to the uh, observation and the finding that contrary to conventional wisdom, nobody does better under pressure. The key is not to do worse. People would always say using how Brady's great under pressure, Brady's the best quarterback. So if he just does his best, he's in some of those moments are going to be pressure moments. He's going to be better than everybody else. In other words, he'll throw a touchdown pass in the last minute of the game. Oh, he came through under pressure. But everybody forgets before halftime the three interceptions that he might have that he might have thrown. So one of the things I want listeners to know is that the edge is not rising to the occasion. The edge is not doing worse. Do you remember the movie, The Natural, with sure. Robert Redford? And remember sure. the ending? The ending is something every baseball fan has seen thousands of times. <laughs> uh, bottom of the ninth, the game is but on the But it doesn't follow the book, though, right? That's right. In the movie, he hits a home run. Yeah. In the book, he strikes out. Yeah. And that's the reality of the situation. So by gathering all this research and, and dissecting the difference between stress and pressure, it led me to a lot of insights. And then I, I started to realize that I got really good at predicting when a player was going to choke. Uh, you know, when I would hear uh, watching the Olympics, and the announcer was saying, talking about snowboarding, and they were talking about one of the guys who had done great all year. And he said, though, if he doesn't win the gold, that his, the season was a waste. As soon as he said that, I knew he was going to choke because he's thinking about the end result, winning the medal. And sure enough, he tumbles when he's coming down uh, the slope. So it was really reading, I must have read two years of studies just on pressure. And I will tell you that most of the best stuff was from other countries in the mm. UK, in Australia, mm. where the sports psychologists are very different than what I would consider the sports psychologists, um, you know, in, in America. How and so specifically? Um, one of the things in terms of, we live in a great marketing society. So I was reading one time about the sports psychologist for Phil Mickelson. You know how he became a sports psychologist with Mickelson? He met him at his country club. If, if I met any athlete at a country club, I could become their quote, sports psychologist. In the UK, in terms of the studies, the sports psychologists that they will study have to be working with a team for several years. The ones that work with athletes you had to work with them for over the period of three olympics in other words they weren't hype the 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 what i'm saying is many of the and not just in psychology and sports but it's marketing when i was in graduate school there is no sports psychology program mm -hmm. that is something that was developed uh later one of the sports psychologists for a major team got the job because her brother was the general manager so that's the difference yeah. In the U.S., it's about connections for sports psychologists. In other countries, they earned their credentials. That's, yeah. that's the nicest way I could put it.
Yeah. So well, Doc, you, you bring up a couple of things here that I want to get into. And uh, I, there are so many things in the book. And that's why ultimately I've got to tell the audience just to go and, and buy it if you want everything. But there's some things that really stood out. You just brought a couple of them up that actually weren't in the book, but that at the program we talk about all the time, which is number one, in times of great stress. And um, we've subsequently changed our uh, vernacular because I used to say in times of great stress, in times of great pressure, and you highlight in the book, and I want you to answer this question, what is the difference between stress and pressure? But what we always highlight is in those moments, we do not rise to the occasion. We fall back on the habits that we created right up until that moment. But you still listen, we'll hear sports announcers every Saturday and Sunday afternoon talking about so-and-so who just rose to the occasion. Right, right. I, I, I remember, and then I'll answer your question, but as I said, being a Yankee fan, I remember watching Derek Jeter's last game. So in the ninth inning, his last at bat and this game is tied, he hits this uh, ground ball single through the right side of the infield that wins the game. And the announcer, Michael Kay, says, oh, it's a storybook ending. Jeter does it again, you know, and with the lights are on, rising to the occasion. The reality is in the seventh inning, he was up with bases loaded and he popped out. Why didn't he hit a grand slam? That would have been rising to the uh, occasion in a dramatic way. Right. So, so the difference between pressure and stress, very important. Um, everybody experiences pressure when you're in a situation where the outcome is dependent on your performance and it's important to you. That means that a high school student taking their SATs, that's a pressure situation. Taking your, your driver's test, that's a pressure situation. Kicking a field goal when the game is tied and there's two seconds left on the clock, that's a pressure situation. Kicking a field goal when your team is up 44 nothing, is not a pressure situation. If you are watching a Red Sox game and the Red Sox are winning 10 nothing, and it's the ninth inning and there's two outs and one of your favorite TV shows is just starting on another station, are you really going to watch the end of that game? You're going to flick. However, if it's 0-0, bottom of the ninth, man on second, you're not turning the set. So when, when situations, and, and that's what brings the anxiety in. If you knew the outcome, there'd be no pressure. If I am a student and I already know that I got an A in the course, regardless of what I get on that final exam, there is no pressure when I take the test. If my grade is dependent on it, then there is a lot of pressure. So that's, what, that's when we experience pressure. When you're in a situation that is important to you, and the outcome is dependent on your performance. Yeah. Stress we experience is basically a sense of when you have many demands on you. For example, it's a Saturday. So your Saturday is you gotta take your son to a soccer game, you have to get a haircut, you have to go to the grocery store, you have to do some errands for your wife. Now that becomes a stressful Saturday because there's a lot of demands being put upon you. And yet it's only you. 
if you could tell somebody else to do all those errands, it would be a stress-free day. So when you are feeling stressed, you're basically feel overwhelmed. When you are feeling pressure, you are more feeling anxious. Uh, pressure doesn't make you exhausted. Stress does. You need a vacation when you're under a lot of stress. You don't need a lot of vacation when you're under a lot of pressure. Staying relaxed helps you when you're stressed. It helps you when you're experiencing pressure, but you still got to throw the touchdown pass. You still, a pilot needs to be relaxed, but you still have to land on the Hudson. That's the pressure, that's the pressure moment. Yeah. So people will have different feelings when they are experiencing stress versus pressure, and it arises in different situations. Yeah, I like the fact how you talked about in a stressful situation, reduction is the goal. Right. In, in a pressure moment, success is the goal. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's another really good way for people to differentiate those two. Yeah. Uh, Doc, a, a line well, in the let book. Let me put in another one. Yeah. Because we can make this in terms of, you know, our personal relationships. I would always ask people, if you're unclear on the difference, ask yourself, would you rather be married to stress or pressure? Now, if you're married to stress, your day is do this, do this, do this, do this. And after you finish doing all that, do this. If you're married to pressure, it's do this and do this and do this. And you better do it right. Otherwise, you're out of here. That's how you can think of them more so. <laughs> Doc, you had said it, you know, and it, it, it highlights something to me. You start the book off in a line that I immediately highlighted on my, on my notebook here is, you said, pressure is more than a nemesis. It is a villain in our lives. You highlighted to me because I think that based on our own experiences, whatever those experiences are in our own life, when we hear the terms pressure, we might think, oh, athletically. But by the same token, at the program, uh, about 50% of our, the teams with whom we work are athletic teams, college and pro teams. But 50% of the teams with whom we work are, are corporate teams. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> Those corporate teammates who are in the corporate teammates and the corporate team leaders who are getting up every morning and going into work, regardless of those their chosen battlefield, boy, they feel it as acutely as athletes might or as members of the military might. We we most of us are 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 married and we have a or we have a significant other. We're parents, and it's just you know pressure is more than a nemesis. It's a villain in our lives. Boy, it's everywhere, right? It's everywhere and it acts like a villain because it sabotages our success. It disrupts our feelings. It causes us to do things. I mean, why, why, do, smart, why do smart kids cheat? If they're so smart, why do they cheat? Why do successful executives lie? Because many of them will say, that's what pressure, that's what pressure to perform does. So that's how it is a, a villain. It sabotages our relationships it sabotages our our ethics i mean wall street is a perfect example in terms of how many people do unethical things because they are on the pressure to show results a a a young person in corporate america who's giving his or her first presentation to a senior 
group will feel the same amount of pressure as the uh, freshman quarterback who is starting a game in front of uh, 70,000 fans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hank, on that note, one of the things that I found extremely uh, interesting, I love the way that you wrote about it. I've already highlighted it to my nine-year-old son and his friends who come over every single Friday for what we call Friendly Friday. It's our weekly workout that we all do. They and their parents do uh, here on our farm. And one of the things that I really like that you highlight is, look, competition is good. But when we have competition, what's our mindset? Is it, as you discussed, is it a ranking mindset or is it an excellence mindset? I talked, I, I read about it and immediately talked to my my son and his buddies about it on Friday that look they're by, I think, I don't know if you want to say by nature or by nurture or whatever it might be, but my son wants to win every single time. I mean, he's competitive. He, he does not like losing. And the thing that I highlighted to them was, Hey, look, competition is good. It, it, it can push us to do more than what we thought we could do. But when we're in this competition, let's make sure that we have an excellence mindset rather than a ranking mindset. It's mm -hmm. good for the athletes to remember, but as you highlight in the book, man, as parents, we got to remember it too. As business leaders, we have to remember it too. Can you, for our audience, can you describe the, the difference between both and why it's so important? Sure. The, the, Two different types of mindsets means the a mindset of excellence means that you're going to do your personal best, that you're not worried about how other people did. When I was in school, my father used to tell me, don't worry about the other kids because you can't control them. If I am a track star running a hundred yard dash, I cannot control the guy next to me. Just like I can't control how much another student is going to study. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Who is the guy who has the most Olympic medals? Carl Lewis. The, the, so he says that when he was starting a race, all he was concerned about was getting a good start. He wasn't thinking about the guy next to him. So an excellent mindset means that you're going to just develop yourself. A ranking mindset means that you are judging yourself, and this is a problem, based on how other people do. One of the things I told both my kids is there's always gonna be somebody better looking, there's always gonna be somebody smarter, there's always gonna be somebody richer. So it's a treadmill when you start to compare yourself to other people. When a young person has that attitude, they always wanna win. That should be transferred to, I always wanna do my best. Sometimes you can do your best, but the bottom line is you're still not gonna win. A student can do their best. They're still not getting into Harvard. That's the bottom, that's the bottom line. So, it's, so when you have a ranking mindset, it re, the real negativity of that is it impacts your self-esteem because you're, making, you're setting yourself up to lose based on how other people do rather than just feeling good that you did your best because that's the best you can do. You can't do better than your best. A C student is never going to get 
1600 on their SATs unless they cheat. If I am a third rate sprinter, it would be phenomenal if I made my college team, but I'm not making the Olympics. But it doesn't matter because when you do your best, you feel good. I mean, I'm sure you have realized because you've worked with so many teams that when a team loses because they screwed up or they choked, that's when they get upset, when they know that they were better than the other team. But if they play their best and they lost, that's when they always say, hey, credit to the other guy. They played better than we are, but you still feel good about yourself. And here's the real problem with when you have a, um, and I'm sure you've seen this in your own experiences, that when you are really competitive in sports, what you are likely to experience is called competitive arousal. This was not in the book. And what competitive arousal, a good example of that would be a football player who's on the other side of the play, and all of a sudden they have a personal foul against the person they're guarding. And they cost their team 15 yards. And they're not even in the game. They're not even in the play. Now, what is that all about? So when you experience competitive arousal, it's like two nine-year-olds running and one of them trips the other so that they can come in first or pushes them. So you get so aroused that your thoughts become hostile towards the people you are competing again and the attitude becomes winning at any cost. That becomes a bad situation. Those are the guys who, when they reach that stage, are pushing somebody, fouling them, illegal roughness, because they've gotten out of control. Why is a quarterback or a runner spiking a football because they gained five yards or a bad call, and then it costs their team another 15 yards? They're becoming too over aroused. And to me, that's the real danger of a ranking mindset because your whole worth is depending on the on winning and beating the other person. So you start to do anything to win. In, in a school system, that turns into cheating and cheating in the sports or uh, just behaviors that work against your team. Yeah, Doc, you that point is something that I see coaching my, my son's teams. And one of the things that, and there are things in the book that I picked up that I said, oh, I'm going to do that now. Like I, I did something wrong with something else. But one of the things that I've always tried to do coaching and that we've, what we teach at the program to coaches and business leaders and parents is that if my son scores a goal or our team wins, I'm happy because he's happy because right. you know he, he gets happy. But as I point out to my son and you see it every single Saturday afternoon, we get done with the game, you come to the sideline. And the first thing parents say is, man, that was a great goal you scored. Man, you had three goals out there today. Well, now you're, you're highlighting to your child, well, that's what matters to mom and dad. That's right. Right? Rather than, hey, let's talk about, were you a good teammate out there today? Were you selfless? How tough were you out there today? Right? How, how, how tenacious? We're going to get to that here in a little bit. How tenacious are you out there? And then, hey, look, I'm really happy that you scored those goals. But it's those behaviors that make us proud. It's the behaviors that I'm going to reward 
not the goal score. And the yeah, the effort and and the behaviors. And you're right. And those are great. Those are great things to say. I remember when my son was playing soccer. You know, he was like six, seven, eight years old. My first question would be, "Did you have fun?" Yeah, he wasn't going to be a professional soccer player. And yet, I remember I heard one father. The first thing he said to his son, it was a young, it was a young dad. I considered myself an older, an older dad. And the first thing I heard a father say to his kid who was about six years old was, "You've got to practice your kicking." Yeah, insane. Yeah. So, so those types of things of parents and coaches of rewarding uh, and praising uh, behavior and attributes within rather than the performance, I think are very important. And I think it's important, Doc, to know, hey, to know and also communicate to your children or your, your athletes or your coworkers, your, your teammates at your company, what are the behaviors that are expected, number one, and clearly communicate that, and then reward those behaviors. To, yes, we hold people accountable when they're not meeting those behavioral standards, but we also gotta make sure that we highlight it as much as we can when people are. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned, which brings me to, to another point in the book that I, that I love reading and my wife and I had a conversation about it, is you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Can you talk about the difference between self-esteem and self-confidence and why uh, maybe some of our thinking is antiquated about the importance of self-esteem or, or, or what we should do as parents and teachers and business leaders and where our focus really should be. I'll start off with a statement saying that I consider that I have good self-esteem, but I have no self-confidence that I could return a serve from Roger Federer. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's the beginning of the difference. Self-esteem is basically a term that refers to how we feel and how we think about our ourselves. Too many people use it interchangeably with the word of self-confident. Self-confidence is really the perception you have of yourself of how you can handle a particular task. In other words, a student can have good self-esteem but no self-confidence when it comes to math or no self-confidence that they're gonna do well on a, uh, you know, on a, you know, on a test. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I can have great self-confidence that uh, I'm going to do well on a math test, but I can also have low self-esteem about myself. Uh, how many times have you seen in movies where the smartest girl, the smartest guy, and they're portrayed as very geeky? So they're very confident in their academic skills, but they feel poorly about themselves um, overall. They feel isolated you know, from others, not popular, and so on. Self-confidence usually comes from uh, success. One of the stupid things that parents do is the good job statement. Good job, good job, and so on. Oh, you cleaned up your room, good job, good job, and so on. It's like, I, I remember my son made the comment when he said to me after a basketball game, he said, Dad, I'm not good. I just like playing with my friends. And I felt great that he said that because it told me that he had an accurate perception 
of himself. It's very important, and this is what most parents don't do, is they give their kids an inaccurate perception of themselves. So they tell them they're the great all the time. And then when the kid gets into a more, quote, competitive situation, mm-hmm. they realize they're not good in that task at, at all. Self-confidence comes from experience in terms of successes. So if there's a parenting lesson and a coaching lesson for, for coaches as well, it's creating successes for your for your kids or for your players um, rather than wait for the success to happen. One of the ways that a parent can create success or a coach can is give, give them a task that is so easy they can succeed in it so that you're defining everything as success. It's getting the momentum going. So success is not scoring the basket. Success is making trying to make a good shot in terms of the effort. Uh, That's how you can start to build up a person's confidence by having successful experiences. And also when you note that they have done something to catch them doing something right. Most parents and coaches catch their athletes and their kids doing something wrong. It's much more effective when you catch Mm -hmm. a person doing something right because then you can praise them and reinforce it. That's how you can use praise to build confidence, by seeing them do something what you consider right in quotes, of course, or correct, and then praising it. And then they start to become confident that they can do it, that they can do it again. Self-esteem, so, so you cannot be confident when you're 30 years old about a particular task, learn how to do it and then become confident. Self-esteem is more of building a gradual process where you are internalizing the experiences that you are as you are growing up and, and, and based on what other people say, how they treat you, how you interpret that, and then formulating that into more of a permanent fixture uh, self-esteem is usually more of a lasting attribute than self-confidence because it's how many times you've seen in sports, a field goal kicker misses three in a row, his self-confidence has taken a major, a major hit. Yeah. He so may never kick I, again. That's right. That's right. I think there was a, that happened in the pros. Yeah. Uh, uh, Indianapolis know, Colts kicker. That's right. Missed one in the playoffs. Yeah. Right. And that was the, uh, that was the end of it. Doc, you, you, one of the things we're getting ahead of ourselves, and I want to I want to go back a little bit as as it pertains to the to the book. But the thing that I loved about it, and I read it, and I talked to my wife about it, is high. You wrote high satisfaction is the result of high performance, not the cause of it. Feeling good about ourselves comes after we succeed, not before. Your children employees will perform better under pressure if you help them build the self-confidence that comes from doing or achieving, not from your attempts to make them feel better about themselves by persuasion. Boy, we see it the opposite, though. I, I see it everywhere. Oh, you're, so, you're such a great this. You're such a great that. Oh, my God, you did such a good job when they, they didn't. Right. And that's tough. And that's tough for parents to um, acknowledge. In part of my early training, I worked as a school psychologist. And I found one of the most difficult interactions was having to sit down with parents and reporting test scores 
IQ scores, uh, you know, back to them. And it's very difficult, just as I would imagine it is for a coach telling parents that their kid is not good enough to make the, make the team. Parents don't want to hear that. And we don't like to hear that about ourselves, you know, either. You know, it's hard. But, see, that's where self-esteem comes in. If you have good self-esteem, you don't, it, it, you don't take it as uh, shattering, a life-ending event. Sports parents, you know, the parents who will go to every game, tell the coaches how to manage their kids, what their kids' position they should be playing. That's the negative effect that they have on their kids. So mm -hmm. when the kid doesn't make a team or fails to win a championship, they become devastated because the parent has pinned everything on, on, that, one, on that one event. It's just like at work. The, and then I'll tell you how to get around it. The, the, um, with work, many people define their success about themselves based on how successful they are at work. You know, it used to be in the old singles world, the first thing when you meet somebody in a bar, the first question would always be, what do you do? And, you know, oh, if you're a doctor, you got status. It's like a kid. It's like a kid at a party. Um, in April, the kid who got into Harvard is going to be the best, you know, there versus the kids who went to, got into lesser schools aren't going to feel as good about themselves. So it's very important for parents not to define their kids' self-esteem about how good they do, that they have to teach them that they have worth. That is why before a sporting event or before a big test, one of the ways that a person can reduce feelings of pressure is to affirm, or for the parents or coach, to affirm their self-worth. No matter how you're doing the test, you're still my guy. I still, I still love you. So that allows the person to realize that even if they don't succeed, they're still a worthy person. And that's the difference between the person who can handle the feet or who gets depressed. Yeah, yeah, it's powerful. Now, Doc, you, you talked in the book. Um, so let's talk then for all of the listeners. Okay, so we all feel pressure. You talk in the book about here are some of the things we can do in the short term to help alleviate some of that pressure in the short term. And then uh, I'd like to discuss the final part of the book with you about, okay, now the initial job is right now, if you're under a lot of pressure, you feel like you're under a lot of pressure, here are some things we can do to help alleviate it. But look, the, the real end state here is so that we don't feel the level of pressure long term uh, by certain things that we can do, uh, which I'll highlight later. Mm -hmm. So, but let's start talk about, okay, today, there's coaches out there that have student athletes, the coaches themselves, uh, husbands and wives, uh, partners in a, uh, in a marriage, business leaders that are there. When you talk about here are some maybe pressure solutions or strategies to use when in the midst of a pressure moment. First, one of the things I love because we don't allow 
this in our own home. We don't allow it at the program. Talk about why thinking of adversity as a challenge rather than a crisis is so important. Okay. And first, let me say that one of the things that happens in a pressure moment is we get distracting thoughts. Our arousal gets out of hand. So the whole idea of managing pressure in the situation is to minimize counterproductive thoughts, distracting thoughts, and to stay calm. Now, with this first point that you're raising, the biggest difference between people who can perform closest to their capabilities in a pressure moment, and I, again, I want to reiterate that, it's not to do better. It's not, the key is not to do worse. Yes. If I am the best, all I have to do is my usual. See, it's, it's not for the A student getting the perfect SATs. They've been doing that all their academic life. That's not a big deal. If somebody in a college football game kicks a 35-year-old field goal to win a game, that's not a headline. The headline is if he misses a 35-year-old uh, <laughs> yeah, game yeah. Because, you're, because the norm is to make that. You've been making it all year. So yeah. why wouldn't you do it here? Now, the biggest difference between people who perform closest to their capabilities and those who don't is perception of the situation. Mm -hmm. People who do not do their best perceive a pressure moment as threatening versus their counterparts who perceive it as a challenge or an opportunity. Now, here's the difference. When you perceive it as threatening, you cannot approach with confidence. You can't be all in because you're going into a threatening situation. Uh, when you perceive it as a opportunity, as a challenge, there's no trepidation. You can approach the situation and give it your best shot. For example, when I first, the first time I taught at UCLA in their business school, I was very nervous. Now, why was I nervous? Because of my thoughts. A, a quick tip is anytime a person is feeling nervous or anxiety or distressful emotion, that is a cue that it is immediately time to re-examine your thinking. And what you will see is your thoughts are not helping you. If a field goal kicker is nervous when he's running onto the field, his thoughts aren't helping him. What is he thinking? Most likely, if he's a pro, he's thinking, is my Nike contract going to be canceled if I miss this? Am I not going to get my bonuses? And so on. So and it's really the same as that field goal kicker running onto the field. It's the same feeling that a sales person has going into a meeting with a huge client, right? Or, a kid, or a kid going in for his social studies test. It's yeah, the, same, yeah. the same, same thing. But if you go, so I used to get very nervous when I first started giving a presentation at UCLA. I must have been thinking, uh, they'll never use me again. Uh, I won't get any business out of this. I'm going to be a failure. No wonder I was nervous. Once I developed the attitude, this is an opportunity to protect, to promote myself. This is an opportunity for me to sell books. I'm going to have a great time. I was never nervous again because I saw it as an opportunity. Uh, when I first started promoting books and so on, I would be nervous doing a podcast such as this. 
Now I see it as an opportunity to promote myself, to educate people, to make new friends such as, such as you. So it becomes just a fun, friendly type of conversation. So that means that a coach is good as saying before a big game, this is a great opportunity for us to show the country what we're, what we're made out of. This is an opportunity for you to show the teacher uh, how much you know, or see it as a, you know, as a challenge. And that changes everything. And what that really means is that when you go into a pressure moment, instead of seeing it as threatening, that you have to befriend it. You have to befriend the moment. You have to welcome it. And that's what people mean when they say, I love, I love pressure. Now, nobody really loves the feeling of pressure because it doesn't feel good. Uh, they love the opportunity yeah. to do their best. Um, I think it was the time, I forgot which uh, NBA playoff it was, but LeBron made the comment, okay, now we're going to see, this is an opportunity to see what we're made of. Right. It wasn't right. threatening to him. Right. This, this is great that we get to see how we can, how we can do. So you want to befriend the moment. It's, it, yeah, you, I love your, your quote about people do not thrive under pressure. They strive for the challenge. Yeah. When was the last time you said to your wife, gee, honey, I wish we had some more pressure in our marriage. <laughs> you know, when was the last time a, a kid came home from school and said, I, I wish we were under more pressure at, at school. Right. Right, right. The, you know, Doc, and it reminds me, and, you know, just from my own personal life, having had a life of doing things that I think others might perceive as scary, or stressful, or there's being a lot of pressure, whether that's the Marine Corps, or, or even before that, right? I mean, attending the Naval Academy, or, or being a Marine officer, climbing Mount Everest, things like that, that and people ask like, oh my God, aren't you scared? And the thing that it always, I always kind of reflect on is it's interesting because I don't really feel that in the moment. I feel excited because, well, hey, what if I don't get to the top of a mountain? It's not going to be, it's not going to be the end of the world right. for me. And, and like, you know, one of the things I found that when you were asking me collecting research, I found the military trains people to perform under pressure better than anybody. You know, I think so. Better than I, anybody. You know, and, well, and we're going to get to one of the things of why I think that, as you highlighted in the book, you said that uh, in, in here, and this is the thing that I love, because we talk about this specifically, Doc, when you say, you say that there is probably no easier pressure solution to use before and during a pressure moment than this. Focus on your mission. Why? Because it gives you a very clear pathway of what you of, of the task and what you were trying to accomplish. And it allows you to block out all other factors. And you just keep you just you just keep going. Doc, how is focusing on your mission? How is that different than being outcome focused or focused on an outcome? Because the, because the question becomes, what do you have to do now to achieve your mission? 
Okay, so focus on my mission of getting a good of getting a good grade. Okay, in order to, if I'm focusing on my mission, that means I have to get a good grade, and then I have to study. I'm not just thinking of getting a I'm getting a good grade. So when you say, uh, focusing your mission, it means you're focusing on everything in your moment. If a bunch of uh, Navy SEALs, for example, have to go into uh, scale a mountain, get to the top, I'm thinking you know movie scenes. The first thing they have to do is climb the mountain. So when they focus, you can't do the mission if you don't do what is in front of you first. So it's really a way of, of very quickly mentally breaking down. It. So you're not thinking 10 miles up the street, you're thinking of the mile that is right in, in front of you. This is what you're, this is what you're, this is what you need to do now in order to achieve that, yeah. that mission. The, uh, the other thing, uh, getting back to the military of why I, I, I agree with you, I think the military did a great job of, of, well, my wife might disagree, right? And maybe my coworkers at the program might disagree, but of why I feel like when I find myself in chaos, in chaotic moments, to your point, I just don't run around like a chicken with my head cut off. I don't start screaming and yelling. And I attribute a lot of that to the fact that as you highlight in the book, we have to, I think your exact terms were, you have to pressure yourself. And see, here's the difference with the military, is I think that if you don't have those military experiences where almost every day you are under pressure, the, the Marine Corps puts you under pressure every single day of your career. So therefore, you just get used to hey, well, I was under pressure here and I did this and that didn't work out so well for myself or my teammates. So now I get put under pressure the following day or even later in the day and I think, all right, well, I've got to make some course adjustments here until because you've been under pressure for so long and so many opportunities that now, okay, I know what to do when I'm under pressure. I've got to remain calm. How I communicate is key. I must stay focused on my mission, not on all, all of these things that you talk about in the book. But the Marine Corps has afforded me the opportunity, hundreds, thousands of opportunity to be under pressure. Most people, if they're not there, they have to, as you talk about, pressure yourself. Yes, and, and because what has happened for you is you have, have habituated those, all those things. So you, you have, what first became a certain way you had to think, now becomes an automatic thought. So you develop an appropriate mindset you're thinking the same thing over and over and and over and one of the ways of how you can pressure yourself is to practice under pressure one time i was helping my son he was testing out he was giving like a speech and he, like a sales presentation so i said all right you know go ahead and he said turn off the tv set and i said why it doesn't bother me and I said, what would you do? Tell your client to turn off their thing if they had it on? I said, if the TV set bothers you, why are you giving a presentation? You're not ready. What yeah. difference does it make? So that means that if a student, if they want to put themselves under pressure, uh, instead of giving them 15 minutes, they know they're going to get 15 minutes for a test, they should do the practice test in 35 minutes. Um, if you're a athlete instead of doing it you know give yourself less time to practice the task um, so you're creating situations 
where you are experiencing the, the pressure of having to perform in almost unrealistic situations. So when you get to the more normalized pressure moments, it becomes a lot easier. If I can give a presentation, a 50 minute presentation, 35 minutes, when I'm doing the real thing and I have 50, it's gonna seem like I have a lot of time because nobody does better under time pressure, nobody. That's where we make a lot of mistakes. I mean, doctors and nurses make critical mistakes when they have to do charting or, or a diagnosis under under time pressure. We all like to have as much time as as possible. A quarterback, if, if they had a 20-minute drill, would have less pressure than if it's in a two-minute drill in terms of at the end of the, you know, end of the game. Well, you use a great example, Doc, with giving a presentation, giving a sales pitch, right? Is okay, give it, but most of us when we when we practice it, we're practicing in a nice quiet room and it's just us in front of a, a mirror or something. When in fact, your point of, no, 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 play loud music and then give it. Right. Do, do, do it in a public space, have other people watching you while you do it. That's, that's the same way about, that would be an example of pressuring yourself, just like when we highlight to coaches throughout America using the football, we'll stick with the football example. Look, a two minute drill, inside your stadium, inside your home stadium at practice is not a two minute drill on the road against your enemy in an 80,000 foot stadium with fans screaming for your death. Like we have to make what we talk about, we talk about controlled and uncontrolled environments. Hank, we talk about it's our job as leaders to make controlled environments as uncontrolled appear as uncontrolled as possible in training but when doing we must make uncontrolled environments appear as controlled as possible we could all do a better job of that and that is the key of one of the keys mm -hmm. as you highlight of handling pressure performing yeah. better or, or performing under pressure i know not yeah. performing better under pressure but performing up to our capability under yeah. pressure you know, and another interesting thing that people can really take control and help themselves, a lot of people feel pressure when they are being observed by others or mm -hmm. when there is an audience or when there is a crowd because, those, because you start thinking, what are they thinking of me? Yeah. Am I doing it right? Do they, do they like me? It's like me giving a presentation all of a sudden I'm thinking, is this making sense to them? Do they like what I'm saying? And then I'm thinking so much about being evaluated by other people I, forget, I lose my train of I lose my train of thought. The athlete becomes so concerned when he thinks a possible agent or scout is thinking that they, it interferes with their performance. So a good strategy is to get used to pe people watching you performing in others. People re should be recording themselves on their on their cell phone just for the sake of being getting practice of being on on camera, and then you forget about the other presence. This is why when parents say to their kids, practice your violin or your instrument, the kid says, I will get out of the room. Because if the parent is watching them, they feel more pressure. But the parents should actually encourage their son or daughter to put on a family concert in the living room and make it fun. And then the child starts to get used to 
doing their best in the presence of other people rather than getting anxious uh, based on how he or she is being evaluated. Doc, let me uh, talk about a few other things, then we'll move on to what can we do long term is uh, that that made an impact on me. And I'd love to hear your thoughts for the benefit of uh, coaches in this particular question specifically. A lot of practices now, coaches will be playing music. It keeps it light. It keeps it exciting. So they play music during practice. But you highlight in the book, again, along this lines of, hey, look, practice should be pressure filled. But then you highlight, but hey, look, before a game, you should, to the extent that you can be listening to music right up to or even during the contest. And now this isn't just for coaches because salespeople who are, or whenever you're in a pressure situation, you, mm-hmm. could have, you could listen to music before you go into a big presentation, right. whether it's listen or sing a song. Uh, should we be playing music during practice to keep it light and exciting? Or should we make the practice as absolutely pressure as possible? And should we allow our student athletes to keep their headphones in right up until the game? Um, All of that is true. All of it. The um, athletes put on their headphones. First of all, if you're listening to music, you can't be thinking about screwing up your performance. You get rid of anxious thoughts. Studies have shown that there's listening to music, listening to music um, with lyrics, and listening to music that has happy lyrics. And the athletes who do the best are the ones who listen to music that has happy lyrics because it's distracting. It zones you out. That's why athletes, when they're warming up, are wearing headphones. They don't want to be distracted by anything else. And it just gives you, you're within, with, you're within, your, within your mind. Also, so it depends on the type of music, as I just said. Uh, you can use music to pump up your team. If you play, I wouldn't recommend you playing classical music or something really slow because it will probably go to sleep or get depressed. But you put on a song in the locker room like YMCA or something, and people are going to start to be uh, jazzed up. I think in terms of a practice situation, not everything, the whole practice session doesn't have to be pressured, but there should be maybe, if a practice session is an hour, uh, 15 or 20 minutes of it might be, okay, now we're going to add some pressure to it. Yeah, or a a, um, third of it. I forgot his name, but he was a basketball coach. And he had his team practice intensely. He created pressure situations. And they, they turned around the record like within one year. It's in the book, but I forgot what example it was. So it's good to practice under pressure. It is good to use music. When my kids would have an interview, I would tell them to hum a song right up until the very first question. Because it distracts you from thinking anxiety arousing um, thoughts and that's why you go ahead let me ask you a question as it pertains to music though as as for a team type activity should athletes see we've always been kind of opposed to until reading your book here about hey athletes all have their headphones in listening to different music towels are draped over their head and they're kind of lost in their own thoughts i read your book and you say well that's actually a pretty good thing but then you just mentioned well hey if we put a song on in the locker room 
meaning, hey, we're going to play one song and all the athletes are going to listen to that one song. What would you recommend to the coach there? Let the athletes listen to their own music or, hey, look, this is a team sport. We're going to play a song in the locker room and all of us are going to listen to the same song. Any thoughts? I would go in, in that situation, in the, lo- in, the, in the locker room, like before the taking the field or the court, yeah. one song. And that becomes yeah. like a team. So like we are family with the Pittsburgh yeah. Pirates. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. became their, that became their, um, you know, their yeah. theme song. Their fight song, yeah. Right. Now, and here's another thing. You mentioned it. What happens in a football game when the team scores a touchdown? Uh, Doc, I stood up and like started laughing when I read that in your book because this gets to enthusiasm, right? When, the other, when we score a touchdown, all of us come together and cheer. When the, the other band, guy and does, the band, and the band plays though, they play yep. the song. Yep. The problem is that's after the success. Yeah. It is, the song should be played during the drive. Yeah. Because that then it becomes motivational and it creates a sense, a sense of enthusiasm. Yeah. See that that's like let and and if you don't score a touchdown, then the school song is never played. Yeah. So that yeah. is something that really should be should be changed. Doc, in uh, one other point, and then we'll move on to the to the what you call a coat of armor, and how we can develop a coat of armor as a way to handle pressure in the short term. You talk about your first advantage. Explain why we should go first. Okay, so you're having a contest with uh, your friend, uh, ten foul shots. And uh, you want to go first or second? Do you want to give first or second when you're giving a uh, presentation or, or something? Conventional wisdom is you go second so you can see how the other person did, modify what you might do based on what they do. No. Let's say we're shooting shots. Now, if I go first and I make my foul shot, you have to make it just to tie. Just to tie, you have to make your shot. If I miss mine, you still have to make yours to take the lead. Now, when we look at research, studies show in World Cup uh, soccer penalty kicks and in um, NHL shootouts, the team that goes first has a huge statistical advantage. Now with football, do you want to receive or kick off? It's different. And the difference is it's a team sport. See, this is the myth of uh, football. I'm a quarterback. Now I throw a touchdown pass with two seconds left. Now my question is, did I perform under pressure or did the receiver make a spectacular catch or for a lousy pass? And did he did? Or did the lineman make a key block? See, in football, your performance is dependent on other people. When you're shooting a penalty kick, it isn't. When you're shooting a foul shot, it isn't. So that only applies to individual tasks, Mm. not to team tasks. Mm. If I am giving a, because you work with companies, so you're the boss and you got three of us, and say, all right, which of you guys wants to give me your pitch first? You'll all have a minute. If I go first, the other two now become distracted because not only do they not want to say what I said, 
but they start thinking they have to be better than what I said, and they lose their own trend. Um, go back to seventh grade, boys on one side, girls on the other, and the boys have to now, you know, walk across the gym and ask the girl to dance. Who ex which boy is experiencing the most pressure? Not the one who goes first and gets the prettiest girl. It's the guy who's waiting. The pressure keeps mounting and mounting and mounting. So that's the notion of when you go first, you're, you're not bothered by distracting thoughts of how the other people did. When you go second or third, you're already comparing yourself to how the others did. And that throws you off the task. So that's why it's better to go first and research supports that. That's really interesting. I think about uh, two thoughts for you, and I'm glad you highlighted the point about football because my question was, that's interesting because when you look at college football over time, you flip a coin and most of the time teams say, hey, I want to play defense first. So I can see if you score a touchdown or you score a field goal, and then I know what I need to do to, in, when I get the ball. Also, the idea is, well, if they score a touchdown and we get to third and 10 and we miss, now it's fourth and 10. Well, if they scored a field goal, I know I can kick it and tie this. Or, well, hey, I know they scored a touchdown, so even though it's fourth and 10, I still have to go for it. Uh, so I, I appreciate you highlighting the difference of why it's different for, for a team sport than individual performance. It also reminds me, Doc, of at the Naval Academy, one of the swim tests or part of the swim test that you have to perform is you have to jump off of what's called the 10-meter platform. The 10-meter platform is a diving board, and it's way up high. And 30 you have feet. To, that, you have to walk around. You have to walk around the 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 uh, the diving platform, the stairs to get up there. And as freshmen at the Naval Academy, every you have to do it. And uh, as people go and jump off, they then hit the water, they swim to the sides, and then they look at the next person coming off the platform. And if there is even a moment of hesitation by the number two person coming, the first person who goes off, there's no heckling, there's no pressure. But as soon as he or she goes off that platform, they swim to the side and now they start looking at the person coming next. And it builds and builds until you'll have 50 people on the edge of the pool watching that person jump off. And if they hesitate even for a second, then the heckling begins of that person. And you will, see Naval Academy midshipmen break out crying in tears and turn around and simply not do it. The first person, I've never seen the first person not jump. My parents, once I was on a vacation with them at a resort, there was a high diving board, like the one you're describing. But at the end of the trip, lifeguard came up to me and he said, Sonny, I've seen you climb up there every day and then you climb down. And I'd get to the top, and I just couldn't do it. <laughs> well, look, you brought up the New York Yankees with a uh, diehard Boston Red Sox fan, so I don't mind bringing up a, an example from your life that pains you, because yeah. believe me, the Yankees have put many more painful moments in my life. As uh, they should, as they should. <laughs> Doc, in the final part of your book, and, 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 and I love it because, yes, here's some short-term solutions. 
but look, how can we develop ourselves to ensure that we just don't feel as much pressure as others do long term? And in it, you talk about confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. You call it a coat of armor. Confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm are the personality attributes of the most accomplished individuals. Those who enjoy the greatest mental and physical health are engaged in positive relationships and experience the most joy in life. That's a big time statement. It is. And you know what's so interesting is I was developing that through my own findings. And then as I started reading more and more in the field of positive psychology, it's like positive psychology, that those attributes are called psychological capital. And that is your, your capital, your resources. And what I have found and, and what is true is when you have those attributes, it allows you to do better in a pressure moment. All of the pressure solutions that readers should know are in the second section of the book are microcosms of confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. So you have to, when, as you build up those attributes, um, then you are able to handle the pressure moments much more effectively. So mm -hmm. if you're confident, obviously you're gonna handle pressure better. As for, mm -hmm. And if you're enthusiastic, and the thing with enthusiasm is people have to know how to create enthusiasm. See, enthusiasm typically happens in two situations. Uh, one is when you experience um, a goal, uh, when you have succeeded in a goal, whether it's a report, whether it's a term paper, whether it's a tough practice, whether it's a win, everybody gets enthusiastic. Uh, and two, when you find something that you really like, uh, because then you become naturally curious. For This is why when people go out on a date and they meet, met somebody they like, they come home and they're very enthusiastic. Unfortunately, we don't accomplish goals or do things that we like every single day. You know, it might be, the, the, the team might be really enthusiastic when they're playing the big Saturday um, game. But that does, but they still need to, they need to be enthusiastic during their practices and the grueling practices as well. So it's very important for people to know, like if you have a meeting in five minutes and it's four o'clock in the afternoon, how can you jazz yourself up? So it's important to have a repertoire of things that you can do. See, that's where music can come in again. Before, before I would give a presentation, I would listen to, um, you know, a, a, my favorite uh, song or two, and it would jazz me up. Or you look at something on, you look at a picture. If you were to look at a picture of your son on your iPhone, for example, right before something, you would start to become more enthusiastic. So that's very important because it gives you positive arousal. Mm. Enthusiasm is simply positive physical arousal and that's why you hear how many times have you seen uh these sports announcers saying one team looks more enthusiastic more energized than the other when i would look at for example in a baseball game i look at the yankee dugout 
And the guys are energetic. They're moving around. They're sitting on the front step of the dugout. Then they show the Red Sox dugout, and you see people just falling asleep on the on on the chair. You know, like like with no enthusiasm, no passion at all, which would explain again why the Yankees have won so many more championships than the Red Sox. Well, see, Doug, you're proving why long ago I, I realized that there was going to be one person in my life that I allowed to be in my life who was a Yankee fan. And that person is named Melissa and is my wife. Uh, and now you're ensuring that that will still only be the person that I let remain in my life as a Yankee fan. But it, it, Doc, we're going to get, we'll get to enthusiasm uh, because there, because I love what you discussed about it. And the idea of positive attitude and positive energy is so important. Let me talk about confidence first. So you call it a coat of armor, confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. In confidence, you highlight men drown twice as often as women because they erroneously think they can swim across the lake. They can't. So too much confidence can be detrimental. It's called arrogance. Arrogance. Right. How do we build uh, confidence in our children, students, athletes, and employees? How can we help build confidence? Well, one thing that's very important is to have an accurate assessment of the of the of the person as a way of building confidence and we're and i'm talking about confidence also in a particular task so if i wanted to be confident to become a confident athlete the first i have to do is uh have an accurate assessment of where i am of where i am now uh if i think that i am the greatest and i have no evidence for that that's what turns into arrogance so accurate assessment accurate measurement is really good it's like getting a baseline if you want to build up a field goal kicker's range the first thing you're going to do is say what can you do right now without any training or anything and maybe they can only kick field goals from the 25 yard line then you're going to give them a whole bunch of tasks that are going to build up his um kicking ability and the more successful that kicker becomes, the more confident he will come up because it's based again on success, concrete results. If you're not getting results, if you're not seeing improvement, it's very hard to feel a sense of confidence in that task. To do things out of order. When I would give a presentation, I would start, the, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. I used to do a tremendous amount of work with IBM, their management development center. I was there maybe twice a month from LA to New York for like five years. And it got to the point where they said, we don't want you to give any more lectures. We just want you to ask questions. And at first it flipped me out. Then when I was discussing it with, because it took me out of my routine, instead of giving a presentation, now I just have to answer questions. Until one of my friends pointed out, what difference does it make? You've heard the questions a million times. And I started doing things, I realized I could do things out of order. And doing things out of order is really a good way to build confidence. So, so I don't know how that might work in football, but it might be running the third down play first, or the second down play, you know, fourth and so on. 
So you're doing things out of routine. So the person starts to feel, or the son or daughter feels that he or she can do that task in any situation. If it's a music, I don't want to hear your whole recital. Start in the middle. Just or just play the last. Just play the last minute. You know, I would say to a parent, uh, show me a kid who can play his violin on a subway in New York, and I'll show you a kid who's not going to choke. Yeah. Doc, and, the, and I see it the same thing. We, 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 with, we have a very important client of our, well, all of our, our, our clients are important. I shouldn't say that, but, um, a, you know, a very a client that we've had for a very long time, we have a great relationship with is an energy provider and their gas journeymen or their linemen who are actually going out working on certain uh, pieces of equipment hey, how can we help build confidence while they are working on that equipment is, yeah, in training, don't start from the piece of broken equipment. Start at this section of a certain part of fixing a piece of equipment. Don't start on slide number one. Give this presentation starting at slide number eight of it. Uh, I understand. Now, and, you and sometimes also you can use the strategy, which we talked about earlier, of making something so easy that it's a guaranteed success and then build up that's really good with young with the young children yeah. it's like getting it's like getting in sales lingo the yes momentum going mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, a couple more things then we'll move on to optimism uh, you highlight if we don't take responsibility of our actions we're never going to build our confidence. I'm glad you said that. It's a very important point. You have to believe that you, you can never have confidence if you do not believe that you can impact the results. If, you're act, if you don't think your actions, because then why would you study? It, it's, if you can't impact the results, why would you study? Why would you practice? So that is a cardinal core belief that you have to assume that your actions can impact the results. Now, a lot of people don't like to do that because it also means taking responsibility for, uh, for the results. But that is a requirement. And, that, and that's a good question to ask people. Do you think that if you practice, you're going to get better? And if the person says no, then go home. Then yeah. what's the point? Now, Doc, with that piece, though, and it's something I, I really liked in the book, where you, you highlight that how people accept criticism or feedback is key in affecting their own confidence. That's we right. find that, Doc, we work, we, we provide experiential training services, 160 teams a year. And during and after that training, we consistently provide feedback to participants. This is what you did well. This is, and we're very conscious of this, not this is what you did wrong. We say this is what you did well. And hey, if you can focus on these areas, these areas will help you improve and you help your team's improvement in the future. Yes. Some individuals, good. some individuals, Doc, will sit there and listen and say thank you. They'll ask leading questions about how they're, they're appreciative of it. Other individuals, it becomes adversarial from, hello, I'd love to talk to you about your performance today. 
Okay. Right. Now, one of the ways you can get around that, fill out the sentence and do it quickly. When I'm criticized, I feel. Me, you want me to do it right yeah, now? Yeah, quickly. When I'm I, criticized, I feel. In, in my own life, when I'm, when I'm criticized, I feel grateful. Okay. When your wife criticizes you, I feel. Oh, uh, angry. Okay. So, yeah. now why would you feel angry when she criticizes you? You don't have to answer because I know the answer. It's because you think she's telling you that you did something wrong. Yeah. See, this is the big difference with criticism. And this is how, and this is why those guys, if those guys, you said some of them get upset and whatever, it's because what are they telling themselves? Some people are hearing it as information that can help them. Other people are hearing it as information that being told that they did something wrong. So one of the things that a coach should do, in my opinion, early on, like the first day the team is together, is to redefine criticism as it, as it originally meant was meant. It, it's evaluation. See, feedback is an appropriate word to use because it begs the question. Feedback is simply a process. When you tell people that they say, here's what you're doing well, that's not feedback, that's praise. When you tell people, here's what you're doing and here's how it could be better, that is criticism. Criticism is an evaluation. And one of the big mistakes that teachers, coaches, people in the business world use is they use the word feedback in lieu of the word criticism. But the person on the grounds that, well, feedback is neutral, it's positive, well, then why do people get defensive? Yeah. Even though you're calling it feedback, the person's hearing it as criticism. So you must give an overt message that criticism is permissible. One of, the, one of the things that I would say to all coaches as an exercise is, okay, now we're gonna watch the game film and our task is we are going to critique it. Now, let me ask you, because what city do you live in? <laughs> Thompson, Connecticut. It's about the size of me, my family, and the chicken. So it's not okay. exactly a it's not exactly a city, but uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, so so what's the paper in Connecticut? Connecticut Post. Hartford Maybe. Current. Hartford Current. Okay, if you looked at at that Hartford and you went to the entertainment section, you are not going to see a um, column that says uh, movie feedbacker. You are not going <laughs> to see restaurant feedbacker. You're right. going to see restaurant critic, movie critic, what is their job to evaluate and what the good ones do. Here's how it could be better. So I would suggest that one of the ways that you can overcome that obstacle with some players getting, quote, defensive, is to get them and give them the exercise that we have to critique our play. And the way we do that is we're going to go over the things that we liked that we did and then we're gonna figure out the things that we could do better. In other words, you're never telling the person they did something wrong. See, some coaches and parents, teachers will say, well, you did this good, this good, then they will use the word but, which negates everything they just said, and then they give the person the negatives. Mm -hmm. So the value and how it relates to performing under pressure and confidence is when you can be receptive to criticism, you're making yourself stronger. You're, you're building up your skills. Um, I want to know when we're finished how I can be more effective in a podcast because I'm going to have to give another one. I want to know when I used to like looking at evaluations from a presentation 
but only the ones that would say, here's how it could be better. A presentation that would say, um, well, uh, should have been this or should have been that, that doesn't help because they're not, because if I should have done that, I would have. I'm doing the best I can. I need to know how I can do better rather than what was just wrong. That doesn't, that doesn't help. One yeah. of the things that coaches also have to remember is take advantage in the halftime. The halftime, I mean, if you're losing by 30 points, how stupid would the coach be to say same game plan, second half? So coaches have to take criticism too. And the way coaches take criticism is they look at the score. And they say, what could I be and how could I be coaching more effectively to get our team back in the game? What are the changes that I have to make? If you get a coach who's rigid and shuts off criticism, then they're not going to make any changes because if they do, it's an acknowledgement that they were doing something wrong. So it's never about right or wrong. It's always about how I can be doing better, which is why all criticism needs to be improvement oriented. Not about right or wrong, how we can get better. Doc, you know, the other point, and then we'll move on, is one of the things that we discuss all the time with business leaders, coaches, everybody. You know, we always talk about here, I'm going to critique you, and you got to be okay with it. I think one of the most powerful tools we can have is as a leader, is we can set the tone, is here, let our team see us being critiqued. Let our team seeing us. But in fact, right, coaches, they get up there and announce and, and, and reporters ask them questions, critiquing their decisions during the game. And what do coaches do? They get defensive. They start yelling and screaming back. At the, but then they were going to turn around to a player and say, but hey, no, with you guys, don't get defensive when I critique you. Good point. But, you got to model it. Don't, that's, we have to model it. Whether you're talking about a coach, a business leader, anybody, a parent, a parent is don't ever ask your people. We learn it in the Marine Corps. Don't ever ask your Marines to do something that you are unwilling or unable to do yourself. We've got to remember that as it pertains to criticism. Let me yeah, talk about optimism. Few optimists are constant whiners, but among pessimists, there are complainers galore. Throughout the day, be aware and grateful for the quality of life you enjoy. You go on to say that you can think of optimism as made up of two parts, expectations and explanations. Can you describe both? Well, the important thing about optimism is what it means is positive thoughts and feelings about ourselves. And exp expectations refer to the future. And explanations usually are about the past. Uh, how you explain your life is very important in terms of being an optimist versus a pessimist. Uh, I want your listeners to know that unless you read the research, it's hard to believe the beneficial uh, aspects and results of having an optimistic thinking style. I mean, optimistic people are healthier. You know why? Because they believe that if they keep their doctor's appointments, it'll make a difference. So they keep them. Pessimists believe eh, it's not going to make a difference. So they don't show up for their appointment. When something good happens to an optimist, 
they say, I deserve it. When something good happens to a pessimist, they say, I was lucky. An optimist finds a parking space in New York City, and they say, yeah, I'm a good driver. A pessimist will then say, oh, was I, was I lucky? Something bad happens to an optimist, um, this will pass. Something bad happens to a pessimist, and they see it as a sense of permanence. Uh, permanence is a key attribute that differentiates optimism and from and pessimism. Optimism, for example, think good, good, the good times will continue to roll. Pessimists don't. Pessimists think that good times are short and they're going to end. Optimists think they're going to keep going. When it comes to bad times, it is just the opposite. Pervasiveness is another. Something good happens to an optimist and they think it applies to all aspects of their life. Something bad happens to an optimist and it's very just a specific aspect of their life. For pessimists, it's the worst. It's the opposite. When something negative happens, it, they explain it as, well, that's my life in general. Everything is bad. When something good happens, it's only for a specific aspect of their, of their life. Now, the reason it is so important for people to have more of an optimistic coping style or an optimistic perspective of life is that it makes everything better. It makes work better. It makes your relationships better. Optimistic teams, by the way, Marty Seligman was a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, has done a lot of work in learned helplessness. He's also done one of his uh, phrases is learned optimism. And he's worked with some teams. One of the things he found is that teams that are optimistic do better than the teams that are pessimistic because they try harder. Because they are optimistic, they think they can, they think they can win. So let the viewers answer this one question. When you wake up in the morning, are you waking up on the sunny side of the bed? Or are you waking up on the dark side of the bed? What are the first thoughts that you wake up with? That sets your, your day. There is, when I have a new book coming out, I wake up in a good mood every single day because I am thinking positive thoughts about my book. Now I will say two weeks before taxes are due, I'm waking up in a negative mood every, <laughs> every, every day. One of the strategies that, I, and I don't care how hokey this sounds, I would tell everybody listening, and I would tell every athlete to write down a sentence or two on a three by five card that if you say the sentence, it puts you in a good mood and put it next to your bed. So it's the first thing you are saying. Yeah. How, remember the movie, Jerry Maguire? Sure. Remember when you said, I love waking up in the morning. How many people actually say that when it's they're getting up at 6.30 in the morning? Yeah. So I'm saying that you start off your day with a positive statement that you were saying to yourself and that will be start to develop an optimistic perspective. Start to expect that good things are gonna happen. Start to do optimistic things. Like, you know, one of the things about emotions that people don't realize, and you can see how important this is for team sports, is the principle that emotions are contagious. It's called emotional contagion. They're like a social virus. That mm -hmm. means that 
okay, so your wife criticizes you and then you get defensive and you get angry. What does your anger do to her? If you're like most couples, she'll start to get angry. And then before you know it, the situation gets out of hand. Well, if I'm the quarterback and I'm anxious uh, in the locker room, I have to tell you that anxiety is going to spread to the entire team. Just like if the, the leader, that's why it's important for leaders to be confident, that confidence spreads to the rest of the, of the team. Yeah. So one of the ways that you can also project positive emotions and optimistic is simply smile. Now, I'm telling you that if you're walking down a hall and you smile at a stranger, a person you don't know, they will smile back at you. They're catching your expression. Um, and that becomes very important. Optimism is the opposite of depression. So when you are optimistic, by using an optimistic vocabulary, for example, it's a beautiful day out today. I would tell, make a list of all the optimistic words you can think of and then start bringing them in to your vocabulary. Have optimistic pictures that show that in the locker room. I know it sounds simplistic, but it makes a big difference. Doc, I, I love it because a, a core belief of what we teach ourselves is that our thoughts become our words and our words manifest themselves in our actions. But it also works in the opposite direction. Our actions affect our words which affect our thoughts. And That's to your point, the idea of just thinking, hey, I'm gonna have a great day today. That, that helps right from the get-go when you wake up in the morning. By the same token, you know, one of the things is that the two points that we always highlight is have to and get to. Uh, I have to go to practice. I have to go to work. I have to do this meeting. Instead, just change your vocabulary to I get to do this. Hey, we get to be here together. Or I want to. I want to. I, I want to be here, right? Just change it. Even if you don't feel like it, just say it because it affects your thoughts, affects your actions. The, the second piece that I would highlight to everybody because it's a question that we get all, all the time, Doc, is, hey, how are you doing? You go, in, you go to get your coffee in the morning. Hey, how's, how's your morning? How's your day been, right? That's a question all of us get. One of the things I've tried to make a habit is to tell people, I'm having the greatest day of my life. Because as soon as I say, I'm having the greatest day of my life, that person who may ask me, the cashier, who may say like, hey, yeah, man, how's your day going? And I go, hey, I'm having the greatest day of my life today. You know what they do? They smile and they go, really? Why? Why is your day? And it's infectious, right? Op optimism is infectious. And, and being mindful of our thoughts, our words, our actions, smiling, those are all great tips Let and that's why and that's why gratitude is expressing gratitude is so important at the end of the day because you get in touch with all the things that you have going for you and you can be appreciative uh and you will also start to be more optimistic in terms of how you look at how you look at things doc i know that we that covid and our response to covid has hurt some people in an incredible amount and i'm not even going to talk that's that's yes it's caused some deaths but our response to covid has i mean you see skyrocketing 
abuse, right? Child abuse, skyrocketing suicide, skyrocketing because of the quarantine. And, and that's a whole different uh, conversation as to what we think our response should be or shouldn't be. But the, the, what you highlight in it is that our need of being social beings around each other is the gr single greatest indicator of health mm -hmm. than anything else there is. And that opportunistic feeling of, hey, what are we grateful for? I appreciate that so many people are, are in some challenging times for a number of different reasons right now. But one of the things that we've done as a family is every week at the end of the week, throughout the quarantine, everybody says one good thing that's occurred because of the quarantine. Just, hey, everybody's talking about how negative it is, negative it is, negative it is, and there are true negatives from it. But instead, hey, let's just focus on a good thing that's come from it. Right. And, and just to get back to another point, because I just thought when you were talking about the teams and criticism, another good exercise is after a mm. game, each player to critique themselves has to stand up and, and say, here's something I can do better in the next game. Not what I did wrong. That doesn't help anybody. But yep. get each player to say, here's how I could do something. Here's what I could do better. And for the coach to say, here's how I could do, here's how I could coach better next game as, as well. So I just Great. That out. Thank you. Let's move on to, to our final two here. And I really appreciate your time here, Doc, this morning, because mm -hmm. I find this I'm stuff fascinating. It. It's key for our success to be the best teammates and to be the best team leaders that we can be. Tenacity. It's a core. Now, I appreciate that you uh, talk about, hey, there are some differences between tenacity, toughness, resilience, and, and grit. I, I know in the book you talk about a little bit of the differences there. I'll, I'll tell you that tough, being tough, it's a core value for me. It's a core value for our family. It's a core value for us as a company. But I love that you talk about without tenacity, our long-term survival would be impossible. Without tenacity, our long-term survival would be impossible. Now, with that said, Doc, explain to the audience what a tardigrade is, what a tardigrade is, and what we can learn from them. A tardigrade is a microbe that can exist in uh, any condition that you can create, and they've been around for millions of years. They are survive in. Uh, in uh, space shuttles and uh, sent in, into space. You can't get rid of them. In other words, they are tenacious. They have been around and they will continue to be around. And when I say tenacity, you know, there'd be no civilization. You look around, a car cannot be built if, if engineers don't have tenacity, stick with it. And that's what tenacity really means, your ability to, pursue long-term um, goals. And I think, as I say in the book, we won't have time to get into those differences now, but it's more encompassing than those other uh, concepts. And the mm -hmm. key thing about tenacity is like I always tell, is that why do people give up on their goals? And what I found is one of the major reasons, if you think of the goals, make a list, goals you've accomplished and goals that you have achieved a differentiating factor is the goals you have achieved are more meaningful. And and what was the first, what was the very first goal of man, for example? Very first goal. 
live, eat. That's right. To eat, you had to find food. Yeah. Nobody, nobody had to tell the man, you need to go out and find some food because it came internally on that. His arousal told him so. It was meaningful. Now, this is why it is so ridiculous for people. You can't set somebody else's goal. This is where business managers make a huge mistake when they try to set their employees' goals. The goal is not meaningful to the person. What they should be saying is, I want you to come up with your own meaningful goals, but they have to contribute for us to make our um, long-term goals. And that is the most important thing about uh, tenacity is that you, have, you, you will not have it if it is not meaningful. So part of a coach, parent's job, teacher's job, is to make what the person is doing create the perception that this is really meaningful. That means that if you are a, a, a janitor uh, in a school, needs to have his work explained of why keeping the bathrooms clean and whatever and the halls and so on, why it is meaningful. Uh, think in terms of now you have, is, is looking up a phone number and giving it to you really a meaningful job? I'm gonna, I'm gonna get depressed if I'm an operator unless somebody can explain to me, and I don't care how they do it, and make me sense I'm really involved in a meaningful task here. It's mm -hmm. also important in terms of creating tenacity for having a sense of respite in terms of relaxation. People need to, because tenacity also requires a sense of uh, energy that you have to put to pursue those goals. So when things get a little frustrating, it's important for people to be able to step back and um, take some relaxation. Look, a guy is going on back on the, early days of man and he's looking for water and he's walking and walking and walking and all of a sudden he's tired so what does he do he sees a tree and he sits down under it well that is the birth of the relaxation break or the relaxation exercise sits under that tree for five minutes and then he can go then he can go um, back and um, pursue the task so it starts off with, it must be meaningful. And then when you have a setback, you have to have strategies. That's why talking to other people when you have a problem is really good. So the early hunter comes back and uh, his wife says, how did you do? And he says, I stunk. I didn't catch anything. I was the worst one. And the chief is really going to be upset. Well, then the wife gives him encouragement and they talk about it, and that becomes the birth of the husband and learning that if he shares his feelings with his wife, it's going to allow him to, to do better. Today, when somebody is failing, they tend to keep those feelings to themselves. That's why a short-term pressure solution is to talk about the feelings. It's silly if in, in a locker room if everybody makes believe they're not feeling any pressure when you know they are. So bring it out in the open. That's when Helps the coach make says, us more hey, tenacious. who's feeling, yeah, who's feeling the pressure and whatever? Okay, we all are. And what are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to stay focused and so on. We're going to do our best. And all of a sudden, that pressure starts to be alleviated. 
So tenacity is really a glue that keeps us together in rough times, but not just rough times. It also, it doesn't have to be rough times. Somebody who was in medical school, if you're not a tenacious student, you're not going to make it through four years. So tenacity also means you have to have a short-term goal and you have to have a long-term goal. So we're down by six points and we're on the 10-yard line and there's two minutes left. What's the goal? To score. What, yeah, but what's the goal before that? What do we need to do to score? Gain yardage. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 so all we need to do, so instead of thinking, we're not going to go 90 yards, who could, that's unrealistic. But what we can do is go 10 yards. Yeah, and after we down. get 10 yards, we can go another 10. And then right. we can go another 10. So when I'm writing a book, I don't think, and, and, and this, you probably have the same experience. If you think in terms of 250, 300 pages, oh, I'm dead before I start. How the hell can I write 300 pages? But I can write two pages. I can write two pages a day, 14 pages uh, a week, you know, uh, 64 pages a month, three and a half months, the book's finished. Now, you know, it never works out that way, but it doesn't matter because it has changed my thinking. It allows me to approach it. So one of the ways of building up tenacity is you have your long-term goal, but then to break it down, short-term goals, because every time you have that short-term goal, it's a success. And then what happens when you have a success? You feel enthusiastic. And that enthusiasm then motivates you to continue continue down the path. And when you have a setback, like, Successful people don't even use the word failure. You know, you know this. They just use like glitches and setbacks. They're using vocabulary that minimizes the turbulence that they are experiencing. Yeah, I. Your point of talking about and then how does enthusiasm come into tenacity? <clears throat> it's a good segue. Before we do, I think two things that you mentioned, Doc, that at least made an impact with with me about this is. Uh, you talk about writing a book, you're 100% right. That's exactly the way you have to look at it is, okay, hey, let's just have a great day writing today, right? Uh, I think the same thing, people talk about some of the big mountains of the world that I've climbed. How do you climb Mount Everest? And now Mount Everest is just the most popular one, but I've climbed a lot of others. People ask, well, how do you do it? How do you climb a mountain? My question is, why would you want to do that? Well, and yeah, I get that. That's the second question, right? That's the second question, Doc. But, you know, people ask them, how do you do it? Yeah, one step at a time. That's it. I don't think about getting to the summit. I think about getting, putting my one foot in front of the other foot. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and, and it's really important, I think, right now for people is, because you mentioned the janitor, about why is your job important? How does it affect everyone? And, you know, Doc, it's why during this time, why I hate the term essential workers. I hate it. Like, I I don't know why we started calling certain individuals in certain roles essential, because I'll I'll tell you right now, that would be like calling the infantry in the Marine Corps. Well, they're essential. Everybody else, you're non-essential. It couldn't be further from the truth. I hate the term. I know hate's a strong word. I hate it because to everybody is essential. We all play a part in 
this country of ours, on the teams that were apart, in the schools, that janitor, it's not the teachers that are, that are not, that are essential. No, the janitor is essential. Everybody is essential. And that mindset and being able to communicate that effectively, I think is hugely important, as you talked about in the book, for our overall success. By the same token, we've got to watch what the words that we're using and what we're communicating so that it doesn't happen. Yes, I, I've noticed that in every effective organization, a, a common denominator is everybody feels they have purpose and meaning. And that's another way to keep your tenacity is to remember what your purpose is, because that will be a driving, a driving force. Finally, with enthusiasm, we talked a little bit about it earlier, uh, but I love how you described enthusiasm. Under such extreme pressure over time, something, something extra is needed to be successful. That something is enthusiasm. Doc, why are positive emotions so effective in helping us perform under pressure? Because they give us a sense of everything we've been talking about. Positive emotions give us a sense of confidence. Uh, they minimize our anxiety. They make what we do are uh, enjoyable so that you don't have to have it, see it as uh, threatening. And I think most of all, I'm just coming to me as we're speaking, it allows you to really experience the pleasure of the task um, rather than the performance of the, of the task. Too many people are performance oriented. I, I found, you know, that speaking, I didn't think of it as a performance. I thought of it as a pleasurable activity. One of the things I've noticed with like TED Talks that a lot of people get up and they say, well, I have to tell you, you know, I'm really nervous and so on. And I'm thinking, if you're nervous when you're giving a TED Talk or a presentation, that tells me that you think of yourself as an actor, that you're giving a performance to people. I never thought of it like that. I never thought of myself as, I always thought of myself as an educator. So by thinking of myself as an educator, my job is just to educate people and to teach people, not to perform. It's not important to me if you, if, if, if uh, you laugh or whatever. Now, you know, I'd have to say some funny things, but naturally, and that's the, that's what I think enthusiasm really does when you have enthusiasm in terms of what you're doing. It allows you to get the joy, the pleasure of what you are doing rather than being concerned that how it is going to be um, uh, received. Because if you're doing your best, that's all you can do anyway. So you don't need to worry about how it's being received. Well, Doc, one of the things in closing that, and I, because we talked about and you highlighted the, the importance of how do we create enthusiasm? You, you had talked earlier about purpose and connection and, and the way we build that connection is through our communication, as you pointed out. Communication is key. But in closing, the, the thing that I really struck me that, that I would share with everybody as it pertains to enthusiasm, you highlighted a Dr. Pentland from the Human Dynamics Lab at MIT. And in all of their study 
of enthusiasm and, and what, what's create success for teams and their ability to perform under pressure. And this isn't athletic teams. Nope. They, they were talking about businesses specifically. And what they talked about was what Dr. Pentland highlighted was one person, one person who infects his or her team with enthusiasm and positive emotion accounts for more than any other factor in the performance of a team. Boy, Look, how, that's many, how, how, how many times has the average baseball player stay on the team because they like him in the clubhouse? 100%. Right? It, and, and, and Doc, further, one of the things we talk about with, with, with teams, athletic teams, businesses, families, whatever it might be, when things are going well, we naturally come together as a group, score a touchdown. Everybody jumps together right. as a group, right? We physically get closer together. Mm -hmm. We communicate more positively, right? We share enthusiasm when things are going well. When in fact, the best teammates and best team leaders share that enthusiasm when it's not going well. Because naturally, when things are going well, people are going to come together. The best teammates and best team leaders, hey, when you're faced with adversity, when you not score the touchdown, how about when the other team scores the touchdown? Do you then make people come together? Do, when, when things are challenging in your life as a family, do you all stop communicating and move apart? Or do you force the family to come together and start re-communicating? How about at your own, uh, at your own businesses? People are, we're, we're struggling right now in this economy, thanks to our, or because of our response to COVID, what are you doing as a leader? Or if not a leader, just one person, what are you doing as a person to infect your team with enthusiasm? Boy, it's easy to do it when things are going well. What you need is when it's not going. When exactly. you need them to do so is when it's not. Yes. Yeah, because that's where blame starts to come up. When teams lose, it's always a question of who do we need to trade? Who do we need to get rid of? So and that is a very important leadership skill to be able to keep the team cohesive and supportive of each other. And this is why, just in terms of teams, one of the things that I've come up upon recently is that the highest status players, at least this is true in professional soccer, are the ones who choke the most. Isn't that interesting? Because there's more pressure on them. And the implications for that as a coach is that nobody should be identified as the best player because it puts too much pressure. Everybody should play their best. But we don't need, once you start to identify this is the best player, more pressure is put on him or her than anybody else. And that will have a negative, that will have a negative effect. And another thing I want to say about enthusiasm, every coach does this now. Do you remember the movie Hoosiers? Of course. Do you know clapping, right? That's right. So I had that. And I will tell you that I sent down in 2015, I sent out my book to 63 coaches that were going to March Madness. And I know they all read that. And I actually have that film clip in my uh, online performing under pressure class. Now you see every coach does that. And I want to tell you another thing I'm watching and Tennessee was playing, I think, uh, maybe University of um, 
I forgot the other school, but they showed in the clubhouse. Pat Summit, may she rest in peace, was the coach of Tennessee at the time. And she says to her team, I want you to go out and rip their hearts out. The other coach says, play our best and they will remember you. That's the team who won. Think of that. What kind of crazy messages? I want you to rip their hearts out. It's nuts. And now every coach claps before their team goes out on the court because it's a way of generating enthusiasm. Uh, Doc, one of the things in the book, in closing, that I'd like to leave all of us, as I said, yes, I've done lots of stuff in my life, personal life, but none of it is as important as husband and father. One of your points of the book, in closing, you said, be careful of having too high of expectations. You highlight that different children have different strengths, yet we hold each of them to the same expectations, even if they're unreachable for one of them. You talk about those two coaches, and I think that I don't know if one is right or one is wrong, but simply our job as leaders to know our people, whether that means our children, our, our husbands, our wives, or, or as I said, our children, our student athletes, our, our students, the, the people we work with and knowing them so that we as leaders can be those people that positively affect their lives. And one of the ways that we can do them is A, ourselves performing best under pressure and B, setting them up for success so that they're able to do the same. You mentioned doctor that, as I said, you're gonna, you're gonna have I'm just blown away today, Doc. I can't even tell you. I think I appreciate so much the time you spent with me. I'm a better person for, for having listened to you for the last two hours. And, and I appreciate you giving that and sharing that with me and us. Uh, to to re-highlight, you've got your next book, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, will be published in September of 2021. You also highlighted your online performing under pressure curriculum that can be found where, Doc? That can be found on my website, which is Henry Weisinger or Hank Weisinger, phd.com. And the, the, I want to say is that they look at the online class. And for those who are listening to this podcast, uh, they just have to enter if they decide they want to sign up for it. It's $97, but they will receive a 50% uh, discount if all they have to use is the coupon program one, but not till tomorrow because I have to set it up and uh, they have lifetime access to the class. And I think they'll find it very useful. Well, Doc, thank you so much for allowing that from our listeners. Uh, Doc, for all of us, a final thought about how we can best perform under pressure? One final thought. I would say the most important thing is just focus on doing your best in any situation. And I think if you keep that in mind, that uh, you'll feel less pressure. You're not trying to win. You're not trying to get 100. You're not trying to get a perfect score. 
you're just trying, you just want to focus on doing your best because that's all any of us can be asked to do. Doc, thank you so much. I thank really you. appreciate I it. I hope you come on. I hope I hope you come on when when the unlikely art of parental pressure comes out. I hope you'll be able to come back and talk about it with us. You can count on it. Thank Thanks you for having me. Thank you.